Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 4 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. Today, we're getting coffee smarter, once again, with Jared Hales. He is the green coffee buyer and co-founder of Hasea Coffee Source, based just north of this show in Anaheim, California. This is Jared's fifth or sixth appearance on the show, and you'll be happy to know that after our chat last week about how this has been an entirely virtual relationship, we actually did get together for coffee this week. The show started during COVID, and as such, I've had quite a few conversations with people, even repeat guests like Jared, without ever actually meeting them in real life. I'm hoping that'll change. If you want even more coffee education than you're already getting from this show, Jared also hosts classes on coffee history, beginning roasting, and flavor profiling. All of the details are on HaseaCoffee.com or follow at HaseaCoffee on Instagram, where they announce all of their upcoming class openings. Those will be linked in the show's notes. Today, Jared and I start with a question about the coffee tree, and our conversation very quickly evolves into worldly impacts on coffee production and changes in supply chain logistics. It's tangents as usual. So you should probably fill that coffee mug right to the top, because it is time for this Coffee Smarter session with Jared Hales, co-founder of Hosea Coffee Source. But what I did notice is, and I think this is a compliment just to the Southern California area as well, you know, where I, I am most of the time, is I didn't necessarily go to a shop somewhere else in the world in the, in the U.S. on this trip and say, oh, this is better than what we have. I feel like I'm regularly drinking some of the best coffee that I have experienced. I mean, it's always noticeable. And there was definitely some Olympia coffee in particular I had at a shop in Burien, uh, Washington, where I literally took a drink and went, oh, oh yeah, that's that's what I've been waiting for, you know, this week. Mm. But it definitely made me really appreciate how lucky I am to live where I do and just have, you know, walk down the street and have great coffee all the time. Right. It comes with the rents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought that was just that we don't have heat or air conditioning. <laughs> so I should welcome you back to the show. I'm keeping that in. I'm going to leave that part. Welcome back to Roast West Coast, Jared of Hasea Coffee Source. Last week, we talked about coffee spoons, kind of burned right through it. It's a spoon, holds liquid, you know, you use it to slurp coffee, easy peasy. I want to uh, get a little bit more complicated this week and talk a little bit about coffee trees. And in particular, how long does it take for a coffee tree to grow? And uh, which is an answer I already know because I've talked to some coffee farmers, but a question I never asked them was once it is grown, once it's mature, how long does that tree produce before it needs to be, you know, replanted? Does it produce every year? How many times? You, I mean, any, any sort of background on coffee trees, just to get a better idea of what farmers are dealing with as far as producing the coffee beans that they've already pre-sold. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> so diving right in, you know, the, the time between planting and producing 
kind of ranges depending on the variety of the coffee plant. And typically that's between two and four years after planting before the coffee is actually producing. The newer varieties um, tend to produce in that two year range where the older, more traditional varieties tend to take up to four years. Is that because we have hybridized coffee plants to do that faster or is that because of a change in the environment somehow? No, that is that is part of the kind of human influence on the coffee plant as you know, labs and, and research groups try to breed new varieties. The focus is really on productivity, you know, resiliency to climate change and other external pressure, as well as quality potential, we call it. So it's not necessarily saying that it's going to be good, but it has the potential to taste good. So these things are kind of all being played with to create, I don't know, the perfect coffee plant, you know, that produces a lot very easily and tastes good as well. But that's kind of like, you know, it's never, it's never to be achieved fully, I think. Um, But it does get closer and closer as research continues on. Interesting. Um, So then after that time, you know, let's say it's three years, it's right in the middle there. That tree has grown. It's producing its first uh, batch of cherries. You know, then what? You know, is that it? Is that tree done or does it continue on, you know, for a lifespan? Most countries, they'll have one harvest per year. And that tree can easily produce for 50 years. I mean, I visited some farms where they've had trees, they tell me they believe to be 80 to 100 years old, still producing. What happens, though, is after, you know, maybe I get a different answer from everyone, and I'm sure it has to do with the type of plant again, but it seems like after 10 to 20 years, the productivity drops in the tree. It doesn't necessarily drop in quality, uh, but it just doesn't produce as many coffee cherries, you know, so not as many beans at, at the end of the day. So some farms will actually, they, they may do a couple of things. They may stump the plant. So they'll cut the tree all the way down to the stump and new growth will spring out of that. And they may do that every eight to 12 years or so. And they may do that a couple of times in the tree's life before they rip out the plant and totally replace it. You know, but that's still shutting down production for potentially another two to four years. So that can be a costly investment. And usually that's done on like a rotating kind of method. So you may you may stump 5% of the plants on the farm. So that's not totally impacting your overall yields. But once it does get that old, it's common practice to rip out the tree when the when the production kind of slows down and gets old. I wonder uh, if that production slowdown is in part due to the fact that an older tree has become one more efficient, but two, if a tree has survived so long, the tree's goal of reproducing becomes less because the assumption is that some of those cherries have fallen and reproduced, you know, looking at it from the tree's perspective, not a human perspective. Right. Hard to answer that, but good point. Good point. 
you you haven't spoken to a tree recently to ask? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but uh, it is interesting to think about like what why does a tree die in general? Why why do some trees live? I mean, some trees are thousands of years old, right? And some live a decade, you know? Sure. Trees are just fascinating creatures in general. Um, there's some really great books. Uh, the Secret Life of Trees um, is one I'd recommend for anyone who wants to learn about trees and just how they are connected uh, to each other and to us. I think one thing that that book in particular taught me about about trees, but just about humans also, is is that we don't we generally look at the world from the perspective of what benefits humans as opposed to how we interact uh, with other species that maybe don't have such obvious methods of communication, say a tree. And I'm not trying to, like to go and say, oh, like we should be hugging. You know, I, I hug trees because trees are great and I think they're awesome. I'm not saying we all have to do that. I'm just saying that there are more connecting points between humans and plants and animals than maybe we realize, but we only see them through one sort of lens as, as, a, as a culture right. or as a species, I guess. I'm not sure exactly if I'm saying that right. But that actually gives me, uh, leads me to a, my next question, which is on the topic of coffee trees, one, is tree the right term? Is it a tree or a bush? It's a tree, right? Uh, I think technically it's a shrub. Oh. And <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know enough about botany to, to identify the reasons, but I don't think it's classified as a tree. I vaguely recall looking up the difference between a shrub and a bush, and I'm going to have to do that again. But my question is, is what is the difference? These are two terms uh, that I hear you hear a lot it, between a, a varietal and a cultivar. So in coffee, we kind of use them incorrectly. For example, any, any, okay. So the basic definition, a cultivar is a, I guess I want to use the word variety just out of habit, but a type of coffee plant uh, that is human made. So human crossbreeding develops cultivars where varieties are actually genetic mutations that happen naturally in the plant. So there's already some diversity in the plant just through mutation, but cultivar is the, is the human element that's actually cross pollinating, crossbreeding these plants to yield new cultivars. So in reality, most of the coffee that we drink, you know, that has a label variety on it is probably a cultivar. Interesting. Even though we call them varieties. <laughs> but coffee people are botanists, you know. <laughs> I'm certainly not. And la language is funny, certainly. Uh-huh. Very interesting. I don't, uh, I don't always just do this, but I was just thinking about it. You know, last time I asked you about, uh, or you mentioned that you were drinking a coffee from Twin Lens in Orange County, and I'm just wondering if there's any roasters that Hasea is working with now that you think are doing some interesting things, or you just want to, you know, make people a little bit more aware of. You know, maybe we haven't heard of. Yeah, I've been working with what comes to mind today is uh, Arcade Coffee Roasters in Riverside, California. And, you know, not only are they really picky with the coffees that they're offering to their uh, customers and their, and their subscription 
you know, customers, but they also just got shout out by LA times for being the best bakehouse, number one bakehouse and number one coffee house in the inland empire. So pretty, pretty awesome to kind of see those efforts recognized. And I should note that those are not necessarily call outs for their coffee, but kind of on a broader scale, like the bakehouse, right? It's more about their whole food menu, coffee menu, experience, everything. So pretty stoked to be to be um, providing those guys with some of their green coffee. Do you uh, like it when your clients are pickier uh, with the products <laughs> that you're offering them? And I can see it going both ways. Yes, because they care but also like just trust me i'm the green coffee provider take (laughs) take what i give you you know is that a good thing or how does that relationship work when you have a client who is a little bit more like hey this is what i need this is what i want this is the quality level i'm looking for i i I like it it's different i kind of have both spectrums so some roasters that we work with uh i almost have become like their staff sourcing person if you know what i mean like full trust whatever i put in front of them they'll probably accept and i like that too but that's a lot of pressure right um so so it is a little bit more stressful even though it seems like it's i don't know like the all the chains are off but it it can be stressful because if it doesn't succeed in their shop or on their website or something I feel a level of responsibility. And then on the other end, there's the very picky roaster, right? Who knows exactly what they want. And those are challenging in another way. Um, I have to be very mindful of what they're asking for and only put in front of them what, what that is. And so also finding that coffee from producers and farms, you know? And sometimes that process could take it can take a whole cycle, like a whole year or longer to find that coffee. But those are, those are almost easier when you find it, you know what I mean? Because it's a perfect match and it's very clear what the expectations are. And so if you can find the coffee for that roaster, then it just clicks. And those roasters usually want that coffee on a recurring basis. And so you know, it's, it, it's easy that way, but I, I don't, I wouldn't say I prefer one type over the other, probably a mix is better. I know that, uh, we've talked in the past about how you like to create longer term relationships with coffee companies that are buying your green coffee or that you're sourcing for. Right. During the last three years, uh, supply chains have been all sorts of screwy. And I think that that might have been a little bit more difficult because in some cases, people are just trying to get what they need in. Have you noticed a change in the supply chains uh, for the better or for the worse or for the same over the, say, the last the last summer? You know, this, uh, we're in 2022. Uh, obviously, we were seeing all kinds of new, you know, ships backed up from L.A. to San Diego at one point or, you know, outside ports. We're not seeing that in the news anymore. Have things actually gotten better or have we just stopped talking about it? Um, a little bit of both. We've definitely, definitely the shock has worn off, I think. So people are talking about these things a little bit less, even though they're not necessarily gone. 
at the same time, things have improved a little bit. I have not shipped coffee to the hometown ports, you know, LA and Long Beach since last August. And we just shipped our first coffee there. It's supposed to arrive next week. So we'll see how long it takes to go through the process of getting the container off the ship. But, you know, just the fact that we were even able to find a boat going to California was a good sign for me because we've been shipping a lot to Texas and even East Coast um, and then railing, which is quite expensive. Rail is being affected just as much as anything else. Wow. Yeah. So, and that, that has been a cheaper option and faster than going to California, but the, the ports here, LA and Long Beach, they handle, I think the number is about 30% of the U S imports. Um, so it's a very critical port. Uh, and I think that's why it just got to be so backed up. That's really interesting. And I want to clarify for anyone listening, when you say you ship to, you're, you're talking about it's being shipped from uh, origin to you. Correct. Correct. You're the one who's just managing that process of getting it to you. I'm wondering about, um, you just said something about um, ships that made me stop for a moment. How do you find a ship to put your container on? Is there like an app, like ships app <laughs> that you can just get matched up with, like Tinder or something? There's bas- it's basically a broker, a system of brokers. You know, they have negotiated rates with shipping lines. So you see, you know, you see those shipping lines all the time, like Mirsk and MSC, right? You might see that printed outside of a container. So you kind of compare rates between different shipping lines and what is available. Now, the problem over the last year is that nothing seems to be available. It's kind of like you take what you can get where now there's a little bit more shopping, you know what I mean? Like a little bit more uh, competition in the rates, which is good, but it's still, it's definitely still out of whack, you know, depending on the country, we're still paying record freight rates um, where other countries are less expensive this year. So it's kind of like, a mixed bag and really depends on where the container is coming from and what shipping lines are available to bring in here. Sure. And, and I'm assuming it depends on a host of other factors like the cost of gas and oil and you know time of year and demand and, and all that stuff. You know, I just drove, Correct. I mentioned I drove around the country and of course the second we got back, they started announcing how gas prices were coming down. But, you know, I've done the same trip several times and you know, for as little as $300 in gas back several years ago. And this year, I think we spent around 1200 uh, in gas to make the same trip, which is a lot of money. But also I noticed in a very similar thing, you know, gas is more expensive here where I am now in California and less expensive in the Midwest and, you know, through the Northern States, uh, then more expensive again, when we hit Vancouver, uh, Canada, but that's kind of true of coffee too. I've noticed, uh, although the range isn't quite as great, but like I generally anticipate spending five to seven dollars for a good cup of coffee, you know, here just in my neighborhood, or three to five for a drip. Mm-hmm. And that number definitely went down. My coffee budget grew exponentially as I moved towards <laughs> the middle and then came back again. And that was really interesting to me, just how 
regionally, we have different expectations that have to be met. You know, beer is another sure. one. I pay 15 bucks for a good six pack here and I'm pretty, I could easily pay 20, but I generally top out around 15 for myself. Uh, but when I was home in Wisconsin, like eight to nine was pretty normal. And um, wow, yeah. so it's definitely, it's just a different dynamic. And I don't think that it's necessarily less expensive to get products there. I, I don't, I don't know, but. Yeah. So like on that note, you know, when we ship coffee to the Midwest, the coffee is the same price and as California roasters. And not only that, we have to pay LTL shipping rates, right. To, to get it to them. So what, is, what does that mean? What does LTL LTL, mean? LTL is a, a, like a pallet, like a less than okay. trailer load. So just like a single or two pallets on a truck that gets combined with other pallets and goes through the whole network of, insane warehousing and <laughs> so that that ltl cost pretty easily can add about 25 cents a pound to the cost of a green coffee and so those roasters in the midwest may end up actually paying more landed at their door than you know someone locally here in california so it's interesting to hear you say that but my guess is you know so much of a cost of a cup of coffee is not the actual coffee right it's the it's the labor is huge and the overheads of the place serving it so it, it sounds like that might be a big driving factor in in what you were noticing yeah certainly uh, there's definitely a difference in labor costs i know wisconsin still has a four dollar and 15 cents i think uh tipped employee minimum wage oh my gosh and I think an overall minimum wage of around seven and change, seven thirty-five. So that's definitely wow. different from the fifteen that is standard here. And um, right, uh, cost of you know your buildings. Uh, that, however, I do think, and I'm speaking a little out of turn. This is a coffee show, not a real estate show. But real estate in in all parts of the country has actually started kind of getting a little bit closer to the cost of real estate here. Rents have changed because with the internet and with COVID, everyone started realizing we can work from anywhere and, you know, mm -hmm. demand to start rising in, in other communities. And right. Doesn't seem to be going down uh, <laughs> very yeah. much anywhere either. So uh, <laughs> as you know, you, you, you have a warehouse of your own, so you're always dealing with that. Jared, thanks for kind of going with me on this trip today. I know we kind of veered and, and wandered a little bit, but uh, I always appreciate having you on the show and, um, you know, we need to stop this virtual meetup and just get together for coffee one day and, and not record. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so looking forward to that. Let's set it up. Sounds like a plan, man. Okay. To recap, a coffee plant takes two to four years to be production ready. Newer varieties will grow faster because science. Once mature, a tree can produce for upwards of 50 years. Assuming that the tree isn't attacked by coffee rust or suffers from an out-of-season frost or a drastic weather event. However, the number of cherries a tree produces will decline over time, and the flavor will change as the tree ages. Farms will counter a tree's decline production by periodically cutting a tree or a section of coffee trees down. The process called stumping inspires new growth and increases production. They'll continue to do that process over and over until a tree is no longer producing cherries as needed. 
at which point that tree and those trees may be torn out of the ground and that section of the farm replanted with new coffee plants beginning the cycle over. The difference between a tree, shrub, or brush is linguistically complicated. I did some research after the show, and essentially it has to do with the size, shape, and number of trunks a plant has, as well as its relationship to the environment around it. It's a complex answer with plenty of exceptions to the rule, and I included a big section on trees in this Coffee Smarter edition of the newsletter on RoastWestCoast.com. It'll break this down a little bit further, but essentially a tree is tall and shrubs and bushes are not, and they're also round. We also learned today that when it comes to coffee, a cultivar is a type of coffee plant that has been human-developed through crossbreeding, and varietals are genetic variations of the coffee plant that occurred naturally. I don't know about you, but I really do feel coffee smarter today. I want to thank Jared for coming back and being an expert on this podcast. I think it helps get us into the mind of both sides of a coffee transaction, farmers and roasters, by looking through the lens of a green coffee buyer. This is Jared's last appearance on the show in Season 6, but I'm feeling pretty confident that he'll be back again in the future, and there may be even more collaborations between Hasea Coffee Source and Roast West Coast on the horizon. Both Jared and I will be at Coffee Fest LA this week, so if you see one of us, don't hesitate to say hello and maybe ask for a sticker. Check out HaseaCoffee.com to see what Jared and his team can offer you as a roaster or someone who wants to learn more about coffee. Follow them at HaseaCoffee on Instagram. You can find those links in this podcast show notes or on RoastWestCoast.com. Thanks to you, everyone out there listening to this podcast today and visiting RoastWestCoast.com on your phone or your laptop to check out the newsletter, which is free to do. And if you're loving this podcast, or even just kind of liking it, and you want to support our efforts to create more of this coffee content, go to RoastWestCoast.com and choose one of the paid subscription newsletter options. Our Season 6 celebration launch gets everyone 16% off a subscription until September 1st, which is only a few days away. Be one of the awesome people helping grow this listener-supported show. Don't wait. That's RoastWestCoast.com to subscribe. When you do, you'll be joining a slate of awesome coffee industry professionals and businesses that I am proud to call industry partners, including Cape Horn Coffee Importers, Marea Coffee, First Light Whiskey, Ascend Coffee Roasters, Ignite Coffee Company, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Moster Coffee Company, and Cafe La Terre. I stopped by three of those partners this week alone. I believe in the products that they're selling or I wouldn't partner with them. You can find links to those brands on the website and even in this podcast show notes. Drink their coffee, try their whiskey, you won't be disappointed. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded in between the planes, trains, trucks, sirens, outside, by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this episode has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. Always tip your baristas and be sure to drink good coffee.
Um, there, I think that was pretty good. 